Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Titus? We're going to look at the second half of chapter 1 and uh, the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a good, uh, a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So this morning we're going to break off the, the first portion of what I just read and consider verses 10 through 16 right at the end there of chapter Chapter one. In the next week, we're going to springboard out of that directly into the into chapter two and consider what's what's there for us. We're going to kind of piece this together as we go through the rest of the time because this letter really flows together nicely. I would encourage you, if you have an opportunity this afternoon, to sit down and read Titus from the beginning to the end. It shouldn't take you much more than ten minutes to do. It's only three chapters, and most chapters have very few verses, fifteen or sixteen verses. All the chapters do. 16 in chapter 1, 15 in chapter 2, 15 in chapter 3. 46 verses altogether. You can easily do that very quickly. So I would encourage you to do that this, this afternoon. Um, this text in particular is very helpful for us because last week we saw why Paul left Titus in Crete, but this morning we see what Titus is up against. What is Titus up against? Every two years, Ligonier Ministries here in the United States, does a survey of Americans 
just Americans in general. And then they do a survey of a subgroup of people who profess to be evangelicals in the United States. And so they ask a bunch of theological questions, just basic, real basic theological questions. And they call this study the state of theology. They make this the- a theological statement, and then they ask people to either agree with the statement or disagree with the statement or say, I, I don't know. And I think there might be degrees in some of those things as well, like somewhat agree or completely agree, those sorts of things. But in this study, it was released this week, earlier this week, and there are a handful of things that I want to, to point out to you that came out of this study. I just want to read a few of these statements to you. And then read how the majority of U.S. evangelicals responded. Not the majority, but the percentages that came through these responses. So listen to some of these. The first statement is this. This is the first one I picked, not the first statement in the survey. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 43% of U.S. evangelicals agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 39% of U.S. evangelicals disagree, and the remaining respondents said they did not know. Another statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 38% of U.S. evangelicals agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 50% of U.S. evangelicals disagree with that statement, and the remaining respondents do not know. So essentially, 50% of people who profess to be evangelicals in America don't know if Jesus was God or actively deny that Jesus is God. Uh, Here's another one. Statement. Jesus is the first and greatest created being, or being created by God. Excuse me, let me read that again. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 70% of U.S. evangelicals agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 18% of U.S. evangelicals disagree. The remaining respondents do not know. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 51% of U.S. evangelicals agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 30% of U.S. evangelicals disagree. The remaining respondents do not know. Additionally, the majority of U.S. evangelicals believe people are basically good by nature, Everyone is born innocent in God's eyes, and that worshiping at home with one's family is a valid replacement for the local church. Curiously enough, 95% of U.S. evangelicals agree with this statement. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. But based on many of the responses, it would seem that most people either don't read the Bible at all, even though they would say they think it's true, Um, or that they haven't actually read or been taught the Bible. This, this is what we're up against. We're up against a culture where people are identifying in similar ways as us as a church, but who are denying the deity of Christ, who are saying that God does in fact change, two things that are well established in scripture, God does not change, and, and Christ, and Jesus Christ is God. They're saying that Jesus is a created being, not an eternal person of the Trinity. They're saying that the Holy Spirit is not a person of the Trinity, but a spiritual force that is sort of floating out there somewhere, sort of like a Star Wars understanding, rather than a Bible-based one. These are the types of things, the trajectories of our own 
culture. And when we look at the results of a survey like this, that we have to say together as a church that the work before us is great. If we're called to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, as we've stated as our mission at Buffalo City Church, then we must realize that the work before us is great. These are no longer accepted truths, even by those who profess to be Christian. What we see as truth flowing out of the Bible is oftentimes even actively rejected by people who say that they are Christians in our own tradition. Titus found himself up against all sorts of challenges, and so I hope that you see that this is immediately applicable to us in our circumstances. This is immediately applicable to us in our circumstances. He was up against all sorts of cultural challenges. And Paul mentions two here that intersect very easily with our own context. I'm going to mention two, these two ideas or these two challenges that Paul uh, sends to Titus and they will guide our time together this morning. The first is false teaching. And the second is cultural conformity. So first, Titus is up against false teaching. Titus is up against false teaching. So last week, we saw that Titus, or Titus is too, according to Paul, if you go back to verse 5, look down in your Bible with me at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, Paul instructed Titus to put what remains into order. Last week we talked about congregational worship, the, the proper ordering of congregational worship, and then the proper ordering of everything else. What does it look like for a believer to live an ordered life within a community of faith? And that means putting the gospel first in everything, in every area of our lives, all of the time, the gospel comes first. It's of first importance. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, one of the ways that Titus is going to instruct, or that Paul is going to instruct Titus to put order into the churches is to appoint elder. That's what he says. And then the rest of the passage we looked at last week, verses 6 through 9, is, is qualifications and how to go about appointing elders in the local church. These elders were to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. We see that right there in verse 9. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are first to be subject to God's word, knowing it and adhering to it for the purpose of teaching others and rebuking those who stand in opposition to it. So, Paul gives us a glimpse of what these elders are going to have to combat now in our path. What are the things that these elders, Titus in particular, is going, are going to have to combat? And it's right there at the beginning of verse 10. For, the many of the, or for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, you may look at verse 10 and you may say this is a list of different people, but Titus is really speaking just about the false teachers here. The list here, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, uh, describes the false teachers. It's quite the list, but it, 
Again, it wouldn't seem that Paul is talking about different people. He's talking about those who, right at the end of verse 9, contradict the trustworthy word as taught. These men who are in Crete and who are seeking to proclaim a gospel different than the gospel that Paul preached and that he entrusted to Titus are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They're out of order. If Titus's charge is to bring order to the churches, what remains in the churches, then insubordination is being out of order. They're stepping outside of the understanding that the gospel is to come first for every believer. They're out of order. The order that Paul wants Titus to establish is based on sound doctrine. And so he teaches sound doctrine, and then they disrupt the sound doctrine and bring people, drag people along with them. Additionally, we're told that they're empty talkers. They try to instruct, but the instruction that they give is empty because it's not backed by anything solid. It's not backed by sound doctrine. And so it is empty. It is meaningless. It is false. It is hopeless. It, is, it doesn't offer grace or insight into the life of the individual. These men, they try to instruct, but they lead people astray. And they're deceivers. And there's no substance because it's void of truth. There's nothing underneath it. There's nothing to shore it up. Paul identifies the primary false teaching. I mentioned this briefly last week, but we should take a little bit of time to understand it better because it's going to help us understand our own context as well. He says that the primary group of offenders here are what we would call the Judaizers. Right here in the text, if you're reading the ESV like I am, you're going to see especially those of the circumcision party. The Judaizers believe that circumcision was required for salvation. The circumcision was required for salvation. So, this is the gospel that the Judaizers would preach. One, you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And two, you get circumcised and then you're saved. They add a work of the law to the gospel and it becomes a pollution of the gospel. And Paul goes to war over this issue multiple times in the New Testament, all over the place through his letters. The church in Galatia fell prey to this thing. If if you're reading through the Bible with us this year in the Bible reading plan that we provided a few weeks ago, you were in Galatians on Wednesday, and I think we read the whole, the whole letter in one, one shot, all six chapters. But you see it all over that letter because it's the primary deception that came to the church in Galatia, these Judaizers, and they were jumping in. They were saying, this is right, and we're all about it. But Paul tells them in the letter that circumcision is a work of the law and that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. At the beginning of chapter 3 in Galatians, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. It's rhetorical. Are you so foolish? Have you begun in the Spirit, receiving 
the truth of the gospel by faith, and now are being perfected by the flesh? The answer is no. In both instances, we are, we are made new by the Spirit and we are perfected or brought to maturity by the Spirit. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is what Paul wants to communicate over and over and over again to these men who make a, a, a work of the law a requirement for salvation. When we hear the good news of Jesus and respond in faith, we are saved. No work of the law required. Not that the law does not have a role in the life of the believer, but we are saved to keep, or to, for good works, not by keeping the law. We should live in step with God's commands as a result of receiving new life in Christ, not as a condition for receiving new life in Christ. And so these Judaizers threatened to bring disorder to the churches in Crete by preaching a false gospel to the churches in Crete like they had the churches in Galatia. Look at verse 14. We see it here. Titus 1.14 Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul is aiming, taking aim at this false teaching. Sound doctrine must be taught in the churches in Crete in order that these false teachers might be identified and rebuked. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where false teaching actually runs very rampant in the church. And I think we saw it in those survey results that I read at the beginning. That men and women who are answering the way that they are questions about the Bible and about who God is, about who Jesus is, about who the Holy Spirit is, and they're answering in ways that are contrary to the Bible are answering those questions because they've been taught by false teachers who masquerade wolves and sheep's clothing. There are many examples, some more easily identifiable than other. You know some of these, and you can easily identify some of them. One of these false gospels that is preached is the prosperity gospel. It says that if you're saved, you're saved to be healthy, wealthy, and wise in this life. There's also syncretism, which oftentimes is relatively easy to identify. It takes aspects of Christianity and it links it up with aspects of, say, New Age religion. Or something like humanism, secular humanism. Or materialism that says the only thing that matters is what we see in front of us here on this earth. Or any other host of religious or philosophical ideas. But I want to say to you that some false teaching is far more subtle. And this is why we must devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture, both in our personal time in God's Word, but also in the context of congregational worship. One of the early church heresies that we see in the New Testament, uh, uh, in addition to something like um, in addition to something like the Judaizers, is Gnosticism. Gnosticism said that Jesus only appeared to be man, but was not actually man. Jesus was only, only just looked on the outside to be a man, but was actually something else altogether. Additionally, Gnosticism believes that some special spiritual knowledge is required to be saved. And I will say to you that Gnosticism, although not a word that you probably use in your everyday vocabulary, is alive and well in our world. Because there are many who deny the humanity of Christ. And even as we saw in survey results, many who deny the deity of Christ. 
Additionally, there are many who you might run in, come in contact with who seem to set up a hierarchy, who pretend like they know something or something special has been revealed to them outside of the Bible, which gives them a leg up on other Christians. This is a subtle form of Gnosticism. And then men and women are sent chasing after uh, otherworldly experiences in or- thinking that it becomes some kind of requirement to be saved. This is a false gospel. Many Christians, additionally, another form of Gnosticism that we see, are taught to believe that the physical world is really not that important. That this is all just kind of fading and it's, and it's worth nothing. The Bible never teaches that. The physical world will pass away. It is temporary. This physical realm will, that's polluted by sin, will go away one day, but it will be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. You and I will receive uh, resurrected bodies, which are physical like they are now, although not subject to sin, death, decay. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and all those who are joined to Christ by faith will receive that resurrected physical body that will live forever, not being susceptible to those things. Temporary doesn't mean meaningless. The Bible never teaches that, and we should not adhere to that idea. So Gnosticism is one that infiltrated the early church and is still alive and well today, and we must be on high alert for it. The one that's uh, referenced in our own text this morning, this circumcision party, these Jewish myths, are one that exists in our world today too. Now, it's unlikely that anyone, I'm assuming Almost everyone, if not everyone in this room, is a, is a Gentile, is not Jewish by heritage. But we don't typically have people running around saying, you need to be circumcised after we get saved. However, Judaizers, the heart of that word is just bringing a Jewishness into Christianity. Now, we look to uh, history in the Old Testament to understand where our faith came from. But many things that the New Testament talks about Um, actually moves us uh, a bit away from some of the practices in the Old Testament. Judaizers exist today. And while circumcision may not be the thing, Christians are often led led astray by those who demand legal additions to the gospel. That's how we're going to define Judaizers. Legal additions to the gospel. A work of the law in circumcision or a work in the law in keeping something else that's communicated in the Old Testament and make it necessary for salvation. For example, many of you uh, have heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement. The Hebrew Roots Movement believes the New Testament church was affected heavily by Greek and Roman thought and therefore was polluted. This is a problem. That was a negative pollution. The first problem is that it casts doubt on the New Testament and the veracity of it. Is it true? Can we say it's true? And if you follow their, uh, their line of thinking to its logical conclusion, you have to say it's not. It's not. Their response, though, is to recover this sort of Jewishness of Christianity. So they look in the Old Testament and they look in the first five books and they find requirements for ancient Israel outlined in, 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 those, in those books, including dietary law or uh, laws about dress or laws about festivals or a seventh-day Sabbath, as opposed to the first day, or rejecting what they consider to be pagan holidays like Easter or Christmas. There's a lot more here, but let me say this. I'm just going to say this, because we could talk about this for a long time. 
But the New Testament addresses these things. And the only way, again, for the Hebrew Roots Movement to hold these positions is to cast doubt on the truth, truthfulness of your New Testament. Friends, we can't do this. We believe wholly that this is inspired by, the word, by, by God himself, written through, uh, written through authors like Paul, written through authors like the Apostle John, and that they are the very words of God, as if Jesus Christ himself were standing before us today, communicating them to us. We must, as people, devote ourselves to sound doctrine, understanding that there are our false teachings that exist in our world all around us that seek to lead us astray, that seek to move us away from the trustworthy word as taught. Jesus is truly God. The Bible is clear. Even though 38% of USA evangelicals may think otherwise, Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly man, even though Gnostics think otherwise. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to achieve all that is necessary for salvation so all who call upon his name might be saved apart from works of the law. The Judaizers want you to think otherwise. Denying the deity or humanity of Christ, claiming his work is insufficient for salvation, is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. Paul tells Titus to bring things to order by teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. Titus is up against false teaching. But the second thing that we see here that Titus is up against is cultural conformity. This is the foundation for becoming susceptible to false teaching. That's how I want you to think about it. When we are conformed to the culture around us that is opposed to God, then we become susceptible to false teaching. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Something not to do and something to do. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So conformity to the world or to our culture is a threat. Brothers and sisters, we must be on high alert. In verse 12 of our text this morning, uh, Paul quotes a Cretan poet by the name of Epimenides who wrote this letter about, or wrote this uh, little quote about 600 years earlier. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Those are not Paul's words he's quoting. And this is the way that the culture had shaped up for the last 600 years. Paul was there. These are cultural markers. Markers that indicate the type of values that were held in the little island. But Titus and the elders of the Cretan churches needed to combat this cultural conformity. Because the things that Defying Cretans are things that are opposed to gospel living. They're moving away, people away from the truth of the gospel. And when we get to chapter 2 next week, when Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, these are the types of things that fall by the wayside. As those who bear the image of God, 
a God who does not change, despite what our culture says, a God who does not change, therefore he cannot lie. And we are called in his image to to bear witness to the reality. We're called to bear witness to the truth of who God is by not bearing false witness. Titus and the elders of the Cretan churches need to combat this cultural conformity because where the church is conformed to the culture, it's especially susceptible to false teaching. In fact, Jesus writes a letter to a church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus tells that church, it's that their, their tolerance of false teaching that he holds against them. Those who are quick to conform to the culture, Paul says that their, the prescription is the same as the false teacher. Look at verse 9. Elders are to rebuke those who contradict, uh, contradict uh, sound doctrine. And then in our text this morning in verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. When they act like liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, they need to be rebuked sharply. Now we think to ourselves, that, that's, that sounds pretty harsh. It sounds pretty tough. Like, maybe we could be a little gentler, Paul. But I don't think Paul, again, I don't think Paul sees this as just a simple, a simple uh, problem that may or may not affect the church. He sees it as a matter of life and death. Uh, again, oftentimes in the New Testament, the church leaders, elders in particular, are considered shepherds. So if you think about an actual shepherd, consider his flock and the flock that may be wandering. A flock that may strike out on a pathway along a cliff. The flock begins to drift further and further in this direction. The shepherd notices the sheep doing this, and so he sits down with the sheep and has a long talk with sheep about the dangers of the cliff. What happens next? Sheep don't understand that. They don't understand, and so their behavior continues. Several sheep are lost in short order because they fall off the cliff. So what should the shepherd have done? A quick, sharp corrective is necessary. This is how Paul is viewing this. So walk away from that now. Don't continue down this path. Don't begin to believe that circumcision is required for salvation. Don't begin to, to depart from the what is sound in faith, what it means to be sound in faith. We all have this tendency. Just because there are shepherds that God appoints in a congregation doesn't mean that they are not also susceptible to these things. Each of us reports or, or is, uh, is bound to the good shepherd who offers us sharp rebukes when we drift away. The goal, though, look at verse, um, where are we? Look at verse 13 again. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Don't mistake the goal. Don't think that the goal is just to be a jerk. The goal here is to 
is in order that they might be sound in faith. We see that word sound. We've talked about sound doctrine and sound in faith, and that word will come up a couple more times here. But what it's describing here is something that's in good condition. That the belief of this individual is in good condition. It's not being threatened by decay of false teaching. Sound in faith. The people of Crete are in jeopardy of chasing after false teaching, especially that of the Judaizers. When we wonder why Paul can't be a little gentler when he said, rebuke them sharply, we, we might be actually drifting into some cultural conformity ourselves. We like the words that come to us to tickle our ears a little bit, to make us feel good in the moment. We like positive affirmations and not negative ones. We like to think in the upper Midwest that we're not easily offended. But we also like to believe in our culture that belief is a matter of personal opinion. And when someone challenges the way we think, we tend to, in actuality, be pretty easily offendable. We must respond in humility, trusting those God has put above us or around us in order that we might be sound in faith. Because of our culture, we may sit down in the middle on any given issue, even an issue that might jeopardize the truth of the gospel, and wonder why sound doctrine is such a big deal. And when false teaching slips into the church, and when the wolves infiltrate the, infiltrate the flock, our conformity to the culture leaves us susceptible to be torn apart as people. So, I'm going to give you a handful of things in conclusion this morning. Four things, four points for you to consider. Cultural conformity opens the door to this false teaching. So these things need to be in front of our eyes as we consider what Paul has written to Titus here. The first thing is this. We must devote ourselves to knowing God through His Word. We must devote ourselves to knowing God through His Word. We have to actually read our Bibles. We have to actually show up on Sundays to hear the Word preached. We have to read the Bible. We have to study the Bible. We have to talk about it with others. We have to consider what God has said to us through His Word as often as we are able. This is what Paul is driving at in Romans 12 too. That in order to not be conformed to this world, we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and it is through the Word of God that our mind is renewed. We cannot identify as Christians and claim that the Bible is 100% truthful, but be able to un- not answer basic questions about the truth that's communicated in Scripture about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. The alternative of devoting ourselves to the Bible is to become susceptible to false teaching. Like the Cretans who are threatened by cultural conformity, it was imperative that they rejected what Paul says in verse 14, the Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Rather, they needed to devote themselves to the true gospel, and the commands of Christ, who is the truth. The Word of God is how we get a renewed mind, 
and at the same time, how we will not be conformed to this world. Friends, this morning I'm concerned that some of you in here this morning have not cracked your Bible open in quite some time. That every time we get together outside of maybe the context of Sunday morning, you, you abandon time where we together study the Bible. Where you think that maybe showing up on a Sunday morning is good enough for you. And you've believed a lie that you can be saved by doing some ritualistic, carrying out some ritualistic things in your life. Like coming on a Sunday morning. Friends, that is a problem. You need to consider what the Bible says. You need to ingest it with regularity. You need to eat it as your bread. And you need to consider that God is who has made himself known to you through his word is speaking to you directly, even through the words that we read this morning. So first, we must devote ourselves to knowing God through his word. Secondly, we must be students of our culture. We need to study how the culture is threatening to shape up all around us. And we need to look for two things. I'm saying we need to look for two things in understanding. There are two things. First, we need to look for contrast. I'm going to tell you what they are. Contrast and commonality. The first is contrast. And here's what I mean by this. In what ways is the culture looking quite different than what we're called to live like as Christians? In what ways is the culture looking quite different than what we're called to live like as Christians? Elevating self instead of dying to it. Looking for self-fulfillment in our marriages or work or recreation first before considering the needs and desires of others. Denying objective truth instead of fighting for it. Misdefining love to mean permission to do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. Our culture has killed more than 60 million babies in the last half century, burned the nuclear family to the ground, decided that sex and gender are social constructs, says that religion is a matter of personal preference, and that God accepts the worship of all world religions, all while making sure to hyper-politicize all of those things so that you filtered every one of those things that I said into a political party. Our culture repeatedly does what Paul writes in Romans 1.18. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. This creates contrast when we live like Christians. We should not be ashamed that those things, that we can say with certainty that those things are wrong and that we should walk the other direction. The culture looks more and more like the culture that Titus is ministering to. And when we speak the truth, rejecting false teaching, and live godly lives, we will look different than the world. And if that bothers you, and if you want to fit in with the culture, I want to ask you if you've truly been made new by Jesus. If you've received the gift of salvation that he freely offers to you, because it's not that you shouldn't look like the world, it's that you can't look like the world. You were created for good works. And what makes those works good is that they are in step with God's will. And when the culture around us is out of step with God's will, then we will look different than the culture. Will you draw the attention and the ire of the world? Of course you will. Jesus knew it and he says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you may object. You may say things don't look that bad in our culture. In our context, right here in Jamestown, North Dakota. We don't want to be people who get up on the wall and scream, look at all of those terrible things out there that are way far off in the distance. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, Buffalo City Church, we must combat even the most basic things that oppose God's word, no matter how benign they seem. There are so-called churches in our community that deny the resurrection of Jesus, that deny the miracles of Jesus, that deny that Jesus is God actively, even in congregational worship. They deny that God would send anyone to hell or that there is actually even a real place called hell. They deny that God created male and female. They claim to worship the God of the Bible, but they simply do not because they're worshiping a God created in their image not and not acknowledging that they were created in his. So we must boldly and courageously stand up for the truth that the Bible communicates. We must boldly and courageously stand up to pollutions of the gospel that require works of the law for our salvation. We must boldly and courageously address the lack of commitment to a community of faith, a local church, making congregational worship only about the individual and not about what God is doing in us as a body. We must boldly and courageously address eroding marriages that have put self at the center We must boldly and courageously address parents who outsource the discipleship of their children. We must boldly and courageously call people to work as unto the Lord, not finding security and safety in the work of their hands, but in the one who freely gives to us all that we need. When we take the foot off the pedal in these areas, and when we start to think about the world the way that the world thinks about the world, we open the door to the erosion and false teaching because self-first attitudes find their logical conclusions in all the things that I mentioned earlier. It's not that bad here. But when we think of self-first, when we consider and live lives that are out of step with the way that the Bible tells us to live, we open the door to these things. So we obey King Jesus. We die to self. We commit to his church. And we contrast even our own community, uh, and the contrast even in our own community in Jamestown will become increasingly apparent. So, we must be students of the culture in the contrast that's created. But let me say this as well. Where we see contrast, we also need to look for commonality with our culture. When our culture, when we, we like to say this, especially if you're conservative, we say, the culture has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's all off the rails. Everything's crazy. And, and then we just complain. But the truth of the reality is that those people who have driven those agendas have the same desires that we have. The same sin that has infiltrated them that they were born into in Adam is the same sin that resides in the hearts of you and I. The desires that they have are not illegitimate. They are just looking to fulfill those desires with something that cannot be fulfilled or cannot fulfill them. 
a song that we sing regularly is Blessed Assurance. Not the hymn, but the, the one by City of Light. And the song simply starts by saying, All my attempts to be satisfied were vain and empty. When we see the world pursuing vain and empty means to be satisfied, drowning problems on a Friday night at the bar, buying boats and cars they can't afford, or changing jobs every other week, or pouring oneself idolatrously into career or parenting or homemaking, or spending hours upon hours in a gym sculpting a decaying body, or chasing the next gateway vacation or the next experience or the next relationship, we share this in common with you and I are not different. Those desires that we're seeking to fulfill are not different. The desires are not for unfamiliar to us. The difference is that we can offer something that will actually satisfy. Not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. We can offer Jesus Christ, who is the infinite source of life. You want to live life to the fullest? Submit yourself fully to the source of all life, Jesus Christ. We say that there's a contrast, but there's also a deep commonality that needs to be acknowledged and understood in order that we might go into the world and make disciples. So, the first two things, we must devote ourselves to knowing God through his word. Second, we must be students of the culture by identifying contrast and commonality. Third, and this flows right out of that idea, in addressing false teaching and cultural conformity, our aim must be redemptive. Here's what I mean. When we proclaim the gospel, we need to understand the goal of proclaiming the gospel. It's seeing men and women come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as our world becomes more hostile to Christianity, sometimes Christians can appear, or even are, antagonistic and combative for the sake of being antagonistic and combative. Going after unbelievers for gotcha moments and viral video. This is not helpful. The goal is not redemptive in those cases. But when we look at what Paul writes to Titus, he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The goal is in order that they might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ or be strengthened into the faith that has already been established in them. Sound in faith. We also must realize that we cannot be in, or what, it cannot be an option to dumb down what is true or to be silent when false teaching and cultural conformity tear brothers and sisters apart. To rebuke false teaching sharply with the goal of strengthening faith is redemptive. But the goal just to win an argument or to appeal in ele- or appear intellectual or anything else We miss the mark and leave people in a worse position than we found them. The goal in addressing false teaching is faith established and faith strengthened. Final thing I'll say, and then we'll move to the Lord's table. We must understand our purpose as a church. I said that the numbers uh, at the beginning of the time when I read those, maybe they were startling. But the grace in it is that it gives us a picture of the work we must do as a church. What are we up against? What are the things that we need to stand firm in as a church? Stats trending 
wrong direction as secularism seems to devour our culture. We have a great opportunity to speak and act differently than the world, creating that contrast, all while looking for commonality and seeking to be redemptive. God has designed this contrast in order that it might be clearly seen that we are ambassadors of a very different kingdom and welcome others to be citizens of that very kingdom. What are we up against? Again, those things. Denial of the, de- de- the deity and the eternality of Christ. The erosion of the omniscience and unchanging nature of God and similar things. Our culture seeks to squelch these things, to silence those who believe it, and to make even the most basic tenets of the Christian faith seem like ignorant babblings of a bygone era. But G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book, The Everlasting Man, he wrote this, Christendom has a series of revolutions in, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again. For it has a God who know the way out of the grave. So, if we feel the pressure from a culture around us and the contrast is growing greater, if we feel like we are being, we are being pressed to the grave, we can ask ourselves, what kind of enemy is death? What kind of enemy is death? Death is a defeated enemy. Not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. And Jesus Christ will not let his church stay dead. That should be comforting and motivating for us. Jesus wins no matter what happens in our current context. Jesus wins no matter what happens in the culture around us. So, let's work together as his ambassadors to preach, to proclaim the gospel, come what may. And that brings us then to the Lord's table. Because Jesus walked out of the grave this morning, we have hope. Hope for every area of our lives. Not just on the final day, but in our day today. The rest of your day today, Jesus Christ provides the hope for everything that you you need. We can reflect now together at the Lord's table on the gospel because when we take the bread, when we receive the bread, we remember Christ's body broken, the body that should have rightfully been ours. Remember the blood shed, the blood that rightfully should have been ours. We acknowledge openly that he was crucified and buried in our place in order that we might receive the forgiveness of sin, in order that we might be joined together with him for all of eternity, receiving an inheritance of eternal life by faith. So this morning as you come to the table, prepare your hearts. Acknowledge openly that all of the things that we've talked about this morning all of the discernment that's required and the many things that swirl around us, the false teaching and the cultural conformity that's ever present is all defeated because of the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You and I, you and I can be absolutely assured that we will spend eternity with him. That's the good news. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We regularly partake in the Lord's Supper together as a church. This is an ordinance given to those who have trusted Christ and been joined to him by faith. If you don't know what that means, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, if you don't know what it means to repent of your sin and trust Jesus, I'd love to have a conversation with you after this morning's congregational worship. But I also urge you and encourage you to not approach the table this morning. No one's watching you. No one's judging you. Understand better what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ and trust him fully. This is for believers. Parents, you have kids in here. This is for believers. If you uh, are not sure where your child stands this morning, um, just use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, pointing to the various elements that we're taking this morning and showing them that Jesus' work was for them as well. If you're visiting with us, you're welcome to participate as well this morning. And I also want to say this this morning. If there are those in, in your midst, or if you are unreconciled to a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is clear. Don't approach the table. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and sister before you approach the table. Um, because by doing, by approaching the table, you do so in an unworthy manner and are liable to judge. So this morning, approach the table um, when you feel set to in your own heart. Come up to the table, grab the elements. You can return to your seats and partake of them as the worship team plays this morning when you're prepared uh, in your own heart. I'm going to pray, and then you're welcome to come down to the table. God, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that it clearly defines what faith is and clearly defines what it means to be saved. God, we recognize that we live in a world that is continually being pulled away from your word, that is continually being moved in a direction. God, would we not be conformed to it, this world? God, but would you transform us by the renewing of our mind? And would you show us very clearly what it means to live in line with sound doctrine? God, would you give us a new and fresh hunger for your word? God, would we desire it more than even life? God, would we be unable to eat or drink before we go to your word in the morning? Not because we feel guilty or because we are under some heavy condemnation. God, but because the draw and the desire is so great within us. Would you do that for us? Would you cause us, as your people, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? As we approach the table, would you remind us deeply, each and every one, of the truth of the gospel? God, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.